Hi, and welcome to Right to Life of Michigan's Life Beat podcast. I am your host, Anna Plymert, and today we're going to be doing a feature on physician-assisted suicide. We talked about this a little bit last week with Genevieve Marnin, but we are going to continue the conversation, go a little bit deeper into the topic, and I have Ed Ribbit here today to do that with us. So thank you, Ed, for joining us. It's great to have you on this podcast. If sure you want to give, if you want to give a little introduction, uh, let people know um, how you know so much about physician-assisted suicide and anything they might need to know about you. Sure. Well, uh, some people might be familiar with the name. Uh, you, uh, as you mentioned, had Genevieve on last week, who was my successor as Right to Life of Michigan's legislative director. She's been in that role for five and a half plus years now and worked alongside me when I was right to life of Michigan's legislative director um, before I, I moved on to other things full time. Um, but I served in the same role that Genevieve's in as the legislative director for right to life of Michigan for uh, over 30 years uh, at the state Capitol doing the lobbying and policy work for RLM. Uh, and of course that time span included the Jack Kevorkian era uh, from 1990, basically through the 90s, uh, when we dealt with Kevorkian's activities, we addressed the issue of assisted suicide uh, broadly, uh, and, and ultimately, a proponents brought a ballot proposal in 1998 uh, as well that uh, you know had Right to Life of Michigan deeply, deeply engaged in all things related to assisted suicide and euthanasia during that time frame, and so. Uh, I was very centrally involved in all of those policy-related elements of assisted suicide in Michigan, particularly in the 90s. So uh, kind of earned my stripes in the trenches. And for those who are old enough to remember the uh, nightmare of scenario that uh, came about under Jack Kevorkian and his attorney, Jeffrey Figer, and uh, all of the elements of that, as well as the 98 Proposal B uh, ballot issue, um, we we were tested by fire in the state of Michigan, no question. And um, so that's that's where the my depth of background comes in. You mentioned kind of a little bit about Jack Kevorkian and Michigan's history with physician-assisted suicide. Could you go just a little bit deeper, kind of explain a timeline and maybe lead it up to where we are today? Sure. Sure. Well, um, so Jack Kevorkian uh, made a little bit of noise in places where people didn't pay attention with his his crusade that he wanted to bring assisted suicide and euthanasia, what he called medicide and and the medical good application of death for for benevolent purposes, all these kind of bizarre thoughts uh, and so forth. Um, that really, you know, folks weren't seeing. It was very much in the fringe of of uh, places to advocate things. But he splashes on the scene in June of 1990 here in Michigan by uh, beginning his crusade of assisted suicide. He invented this little machine. It was an IV drip machine that provided a series of uh, medications to kill a patient, essentially kill an individual through an IV drip. Uh, he called it the Thanatron. 
And he uh, had a woman from Oregon who was in early stages, the very earliest stages of, of Alzheimer's or dementia. Uh, she flew from Oregon to Michigan and he arranged for her, her death, her quote unquote suicide with his IV machine in the back of his rusty Volkswagen uh, microbus. Uh, and then splashed on the scene saying, I've now started a, an assisted suicide uh, industry here in the state of Michigan. Um, so and that's this what is, this yeah. is all why while it's illegal in Michigan, correct? Correct. Yeah. Well, and, and at the time, uh, as has been the case in many, many states there, while it is not and there have been laws that made attempting or committing suicide a crime. Those laws were all, uh, by and large, revoked um, because we understand, of course, suicide to be a mental health crisis and and a cry for help and many other things, uh, and not a crime. And and you go all the way back to English law of centuries ago, where uh, assisted su suicide of any form was considered a crime against the crown because you deprived uh, the king of one of his servants. Um, so the idea that it was criminal had had a rather arcane legal basis. Um, so at the time in 1990, uh, as was the case in uh, in many states, there was not an explicit law that said assisting someone in suicide was a crime, um, but that it was considered a common law crime. That while we would view suicide again as a, as a desperate act, as an as an act manifest of mental illness or depression or some other challenge to the individual. There was clearly the view in law that it was a degree of a homicidal act to assist someone who wanted to commit suicide. And so various examples of court cases and 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 even um, Steinbeck's book of I think of mice and men, uh, right? there was there's a circumstance of quote unquote, assisting in a suicide. So the historical context, both culturally and legally, was that assisting in suicide was a crime. So in Michigan, it was a common law crime where the courts allowed prosecutions of people under homicide law if you assisted someone in their suicide. So at the time Kevorkian did this, it was a presumed crime. We could go back and look at cases that you know may have been decades before where someone was prosecuted for purposely assisting another person in their in their suicide or attempted suicide if it failed. Uh, so indeed, Kevorkian was charged under that common law crime. And then he began a whole series of legal maneuverings and appeals and making the claim that in the absence of an actual statute, a law that created the crime of assisted suicide, that, that he couldn't be prosecuted. And that began, uh, you know, a decade long, almost an eight year long odyssey of court cases and appeals and prosecutions that were were suspended or thrown out or appealed and, and juries that refused to convict and mistrials. It was it, it, Kevorkian just wreaked havoc on our on our criminal system for about eight years, which corresponded with a lot of work in the legislative process, which Right to Life was involved in. And then ultimately, a group of advocates who were watching it all happen wanted to bring suicide as a you know assisted suicide and and so forth as a legal option, and then they pursued a ballot proposal which became Proposal B of 1998. So, it, there there's a whole big 
story that can be told about that mm -hmm. that eight years of stuff that included as i say a lot of advocacy work on our part and getting eventually a ban on assisted suicide on the books in michigan um as well as uh the vote to reject the legalization scheme uh that was proposal b of 1998. well thank you for the background that's very helpful since 1998, we have obviously not had physician-assisted suicide in Michigan, so that kind of leads up to where we are today and why we're talking about this again, why this conversation is relevant now. As we mentioned in our episode last week, the Michigan legislator did introduce a package of bills. There's four bills within the package that would repeal our assisted suicide law that prohibits it and would also legalize assisted su assisted suicide in Michigan for the terminally ill who have been given a prognosis of six months to live. So that's why we're talking about that this today. This is where we are at. So we've covered this topic pretty extensively just throughout um, last couple months, through our podcasts, through our social medias, through our website. One thing that we haven't touched a whole lot on is what is the pro-life approach to end-of-life care? Yeah, well, and that that's a, a part of uh, what our advocacy involved back in the 1990s. Um, you know, to an extent, you know, you think back you know, in 1998, we're talking 25 years ago now when the voters said no to the proposal. And it was to our benefit. It was a very badly crafted proposal. Um, these folks thought that they knew how to write law and could could pivot on laws that were in place, say, in Europe and the Netherlands and places where they were already uh, down the road of legalizing or in the state of Oregon. Uh, and, and a few states that had legalized assisted suicide. And so they crafted a, a proposal that they thought was enlightened and humane and all these other things. And it really was, it, it, was, a, it was a mess. It was a policy mess. And it allowed us, uh, as the campaign against that legalization scheme, uh, to explain to the voters what a really bad law it was. And so uh, and they they didn't really have the support that they thought they they couldn't mount a valid ballot campaign. They didn't have television ads and so forth. And so, you know, we defeated it seventy one to twenty nine. I mean, it was it was a historic crush of of this uh, advocacy to legalize it. And um, so, in a lot of people's mind, it was like issue settled. We just don't need to go there um, because alongside of our work to put a ban in place. As you mentioned, now they would like to repeal it. And the voters saying no to uh, this ballot proposal. We also were on a very uh, aggressive and proactive agenda legislatively in creating an environment, as you say, a pro-life response or alternative to the idea that some people are in difficult medical circumstances or end-of-life circumstances. How do we create a situation where they would never think that turning to assisted suicide or euthanasia 
uh, is either a good choice or a necessary choice. So we actively, and, and even leading into that time, in 1990, we were very involved in a big debate over living wills and advanced directive documents of what should the law be like. And so also in 1990, we finished work alongside of uh, legislators and medical professionals and all kinds of people on our patient advocate or power of attorney law that you empower someone to make decisions for you at end of life uh, in circumstances where you can't make decisions, whether you're in a coma from an accident or whatever it might be, you appoint a person who will then uh, make decisions. So we worked and put a very protective law in place then, uh, and, and it came to fruition in 1990. That law has worked well for this, um, you know, 30 years, uh, 30 plus years, and it, it is still a very effective and protective law for people to make arrangements for their end of life decision making, um, but do so in a way that does does not allow vulnerable patients and other people to be manipulated or take advantage of weaknesses in the law to essentially, you know, let's get rid of granny right, in the nursing home kind of thing. So one, we had a protective law, but then we also did things like um, expand, uh, uh, well, actually create licensing for what we call in Michigan now hospice homes. Back in, the, in 1990, and at the time of all this going on, there were not a lot of residential hospice programs. There were not hospice programs and hospice wings inside of hospitals themselves. Um, basically, there was a, a fairly small and often very volunteer-supported hospice, localized hospice programs that would come to people's homes and provide hospice care in homes, which is still the core of the model. But for folks that didn't have family to care for them, someone who had other additional medical needs and that, and they weren't going to be able to get hospice care at home, there was no place for them to go to quote unquote die well, right? To have a wraparound end of life care that would manage their pain, that would, would provide for their needs. Um, and <clears throat> so that we wouldn't have these sob stories or these dramatized stories that euthanasia and assisted suicide advocates would, would put forward all the time. Oh, look at how this person died, this horrible, lonely, painful death. They didn't have good care. They didn't have good pain management. They, you know, they were abandoned. So we began to respond to those narratives partly by um, licensing hospice homes. So hospice programs and other community uh, resources could be put together. So people who needed a place to die well would have a place to go. And so we we worked very hard and, and passed a lot of licensed hospice homes. Um, another thing we did was to integrate pain management and palliative care into our medical school training here in the state of Michigan. At the time we had three medical schools. I think we have four or five now. Um, but we wanted to make sure that palliative care, effective pain management, end of life care were built into the curriculums. And it wasn't just throw morphine at the patient and, and not be any more sophisticated than that. So by actually getting into our educational structure and system, uh, we created have created an environment in Michigan where you don't need to think about killing someone because we can treat them well in these circumstances where they need the palliative or, you know, hospice end of life care. So those are some of the 
you know, between patient advocacy, hospice homes, good education on pain management. These were some of the infrastructure we built that have made the last 30 plus years in Michigan a place where no one take, had reason to take assisted suicide seriously. You know, that's all very interesting because I am younger. And so for me, my whole life, we have always had those services in place in Michigan. And I never kind of put two and two together that at some point those had to be put in place and that that was only 25 years ago. So that's really interesting. I didn't really know any of that history. Yeah. And and it was a very aggressive campaign on our part, along with many partners, right? At, at that time, hospice care um, wasn't new, but but it wasn't as mainstream as people are aware of it now. And again, there wasn't a thing like a hospice home. Say a homeless person now is terminally ill. Where do they go? Right. Um, mm -hmm. There was no place for them to go. Um, there were, of course, another element that that wasn't discussed in, in the wake of all of these, uh, the Kevorkian activities. And he was bringing all these court cases and other people were challenging uh, the um common law ban on assisted suicide, the legislature, as it often does, uh, rather than definitively do something, they punt by creating a blue ribbon commission to study it and come back with recommendations. So there was, in <laughs> fact, the there was, in fact, the Michigan Commission on Death and Dying. Um, it uh, I was a member of it. Uh, right Life of Michigan was able to have uh, a place at the table, along with all kinds of stakeholders, uh, across the spectrum. Uh, and because of it, there was certainly no consensus. You had flat out advocates of euthanasia on and, and the assisted suicide on the commission alongside flat out opponents like us at Right to Life of Michigan. So the idea that there would be some consensus everybody kind of knew wasn't going to happen from the start, but it was a year and a half long public forum. We went around the state holding public hearings so people could comment we listened to all kinds of experts and gathered all kinds of information, put this big report out that said, well, some of us still think we should legalize suicide and some of us think we shouldn't. And some people think we should just fix the system as much as possible. So there's as little demand as necessary for assisted suicide. So that spectrum was discussed. And in the course of it, the sorts of initiatives that we heavily pushed in the state as policies um, from <laughs> assisted from uh, hospice care and 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 better pain management education in medical schools, et cetera, um, we, we work to to address the entire issue and to create a place. So yeah, so as you say, that just has always been. Um, well, thirty years ago it wasn't, but we did a lot to make it that way. Is there anything, a short little message that you think people should know as we move into this battle again, um, a short little message that you think people should know uh, before we end this episode? Well, I, there are a couple of, of short messages, but perhaps, you know, the most important one is, is for us to present that life-affirming message to say that we in Michigan confronted this issue and created 
the right response to people's difficult circumstances and assisted suicide and euthanasia is the wrong response. It is the abandonment of people. It is the abandonment of good medical ethics. And if we could go from Jack Kevorkian running around killing people to a statewide vote on a, on a ballot proposal to creating one of the finest uh, sets of laws and policies and supports, there is no reason to go backwards uh, and, and entertain killing patients because ultimately vulnerable people will be killed that never should have. And that's that's something we as a, as a pro-life community need to take to heart and share with those around as, as any of this discussion may go forward in the legislature um, that we've been there and we did it right and we should not ever go back. Well, unfortunately, we are having to have this conversation even today. And for those of you who would like to fight against this, who would like to um, contact your senators because they are kind of the next in line who could potentially be voting on this, please go to our website at rtl.org. Right on our homepage, we have an opportunity for you to check out resources, to learn about physician-assisted suicide, why you should oppose it, how it is harmful to communities of color, why it's harmful to people who are disabled, the elderly veterans. So if you want to know more, please check out our website. And if you could just take a few minutes to call or email your state leg or state senators, that would be amazing. Let them know to vote no on this package of bills. Thank you so much, Ed, for joining me today and for sharing your expertise with our audience. Well, I hope uh, I hope that context um, inspires people to realize that uh, this is an important important battle for us to stay engaged in and to win it again this time around. Yes, yes, we hope to do that, and we will definitely be continuing this conversation throughout all of our channels of communication. So, thank you, everyone, for joining us today, and we hope you have a safe and relaxing weekend.